Um, there's a real uh, importance on our presidents today to speak about the value of their institutions in ways that uh, they're not accustomed to. A lot of the conversation been in the past has been, if I will, about a more abstract contribution that higher ed provides. This many billion dollars in economic activity. Everybody has a, an economic impact assessment <clears throat> to show the role of their institution in the economy, et cetera. Uh, but I think today people want to know, if I go to your institution, am I going to get a degree that is going to lead to a job and a career that I want? And the question marks on that are flashing really bright red and loud. The president of the United States wanted to forgive debt for 43 million Americans. That suggests that 43 million Americans uh, may have uh, taken on amount of debt that their degrees couldn't support. Welcome to Innovating Together, a podcast produced by the University Innovation Alliance. This is a podcast for busy people in higher education who are looking for the best ideas, inspiration, and leaders that will help you improve student success. I'm your host, Bridget Burns. Each week, I partner with a journalist to have a conversation with a sitting college president, chancellor, system leader, or someone in the broader ecosystem who's really an inspiring leader. And the goal is to have a conversation to distill their perspective and their insights gathered from their leadership journey. Our hope is that this is inspiring and gives you something to look forward to each week. This episode, my co-host is Inside Higher Ed co-founder and CEO, Doug Lederman. Uh, this week, we're really excited to bring back a guest who we've not seen in a long time. And back when he was last on the show, he was the president of Georgia State University, a longtime leader in higher education. He was also on my board. So, I mean, he was technically my boss. Now he is the president of APLU. And so it's a big change. It's an exciting change, but we're excited to welcome President Mark Becker. Thank you, Bridget. And Doug, it's a pleasure to be with you again. It's great to see you both. As I mentioned, a little bit of a, a job change, super curious that I, I want to understand you were retired technically. He would put in enough time. You had transformed an institution. You have this incredible legacy story of doing something that's never been done in higher ed at one institution. For most people, that's good enough. And yet somehow you have gotten the energy. Well, we are not surprised because we know that you climb mountains and stuff like that, but somehow you get the energy to start a chapter two. Tell us about that and what inspired you to come to APLU. Well, certainly. So yeah, it's uh, all honesty. Yes, I failed retirement. I, I wasn't actually fully retired. I was in my first year post-presidency as an executive in residence at Georgia State and was given a, a two-year period as an executive in residence to basically figure out what, um, if any, role I wanted to continue to have in higher ed. And I found myself involved in a lot of different projects, so to speak, and um, realized that I was um, juggling a lot of balls. And then one Sunday afternoon, I got a phone call, said, um, you know, Peter McPherson has announced he's uh, stepping down at APLU. And would you consider um, coming to APLU and be Peter's successor? The more I thought about it, the more I realized that was a good second chapter or next chapter, if you will, because I literally have spent my entire adult life with APLU in some way, shape or form, meaning from the day I started graduate school in September 1980 um, until today, I've been in either a student or an employee 
of, of an institution that is part of APLU, it was nostalgic back then, National Association of State Universities and Land-Grant Colleges. I was on the board, I was a member of the um, Council of Academic Affairs when we went through the transition from nostalgic to APLU. I was on the board, I've been involved with USU, it's an affiliate of APLU, et cetera. So it was an opportunity, if you will, to, to give back and to stay engaged with that sector of higher education that is, is, the, is the heart of my career, which is the public research universities. What are the biggest differences for you in terms of being the head of an institution and then being you know, what I would suspect to be both a, a wrangler of peers, maybe? I don't know how you look at your role exactly at APLU, but trying to bring the collective wisdom and power and of these institutions together. What are the differences in both the job and in how you lead? So first and foremost, weekends and nights belong to me now. So, you know, I say that tongue in cheek, being a president of APLU is very different than being president of a campus, the heart of your question. You know, at, at a university, you're literally on every day and every minute. You, you never know when you're going to get the phone call that something immediate needs attention. And, and that's usually not a good phone call. So it, it is definitely a transition in roles. Um, you know, I, I loved being a university president, did it for 12 and a half years, was able to serve an amazing institution in a great city and, and a prosperous state. And so um, had a great run. Uh, but this is much more, you know, the, the first thing is is the mindset. There, the goal was to create a vi- articulate a vision, develop a strategic plan, and then execute on that plan, get buy-in, you know, do, do the entire leadership thing, if you will, read all the leadership books. This role, we're a membership organization, and we're a membership organization that primarily serves the leadership of its member institutions. So we're organized around um, nine councils, and each council is by position. So a council of presidents and another one for the provost, VP, student affairs, senior research officers, et cetera. And so it, it's much more, if you will, about listening and being responsive to the members. So the the, the premium on having what Jim Collins would call a, a big, hairy, audacious goal if from, you know, from good to great is less my focus here, and my focus is much more on serving the members, making sure we're providing value, and really striving constantly to see how we can up our game, if you will. A big part of APLU um, is advocacy, um, representing our members and their interests um, on Capitol Hill and to the White House, meaning to the administration. And so it's it's required me to, if you will, adjust somewhat. Uh, but at the same time, it, it, it keeps me engaged in advancing the mission and the value and the importance of our public research universities, our flagships, our land grants, as well as our urban serving and regional research universities. And so it it is a change. It's it's very much a different change. It's not the same as being president of a university, but it's, it's still incredibly rewarding. And the part that when you're a university president, one of the things that really energizes you and keeps you going is the engagement with students, the engagement with alumni. In in this role, it's the engagement with um, our university presidents, our provosts, senior research officers, et cetera. Talking, you know, being able to stay connected uh, with the campuses. It's most days of the week, I have at least um, one or two Zoom calls with a member president and being able to make sure that I'm staying current with what are the issues and the challenges they're facing to make sure that APLU is able to um, be responsive and supportive of them. I'm just wondering if part of the reason that 
you were sought out to be APLU president might be because you did the undoable, that the student success work that you led was unprecedented and has not been replicated fully anywhere. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that was an indication of priorities or just, I'm just curious if you sense that people are looking for you to teach them what you knew or what you had to figure out in order to do that, or if you just think it just gave you a positional authority that made it so that that credibility lent itself to you being a great APLU leader. Well, I, I don't know that I'd say that, that you know, I was sold out to, to teach people. I would say that it's been very clear just by the number of invitations I get to speak and visit institutions, whether it's speaking with boards or the faculty groups or the leadership teams, that my past background and experience has been valued by the membership. I would suspect, but I didn't go out to hire me, somebody else did, but that certainly seems to be something people have resonated to. And when I engage with the members and have these conversations, it's not as if my present is separated from my past. You know, there's it's a continuum there and the conversations very much do resonate around how do we, in this day and time where the public confidence in higher education has, seems to be declining, uh, I think there's a lot of um, interest in resonance around uh, what are we doing for students? How are we making sure we're serving them? Um, how are we contributing uh, to advancing society by um, eliminating disparities, um, particularly in terms of um, outcomes and the like? We are hearing pretty constantly from presidents who are struggling with the job and with the doability of the job. And I'm curious, as you know, you, you made a comment earlier about getting your nights and weekends back, which I think a lot of presidents, they can do that job for a while. But I'm curious, now that you're hearing and talking to presumably even more presidents than you were before, what is your analysis or, or diagnosis of, of the, the job of the presidency right now, particularly at incredibly complex and in your case, all public institutions that are having to deal with very difficult, sometimes political environments, et cetera. What is your thinking about the sustainability of the research and, and land-grant university president presidency? And are, are, is, is any of your work at APLU aimed at, at addressing that at all? Yeah, so let, let me start with, uh, I still think uh, being university president of an APLU institution is one of the best jobs you can have. Uh, you just have to be prepared for it, it will be all-consuming. Uh, if this is a, a job that you will take or the job you're in, you know it's all-consuming. Back when I was in the seat, I, mean, I, I had uh, people that had entrepreneurs who had started companies, had been CEOs, had taken companies public, tell me that the job I had was much harder than anything they had ever done. And it's particularly from the the point of view of the number of constituencies that you are um, held ac accountable by or the number of constituencies that think that they have a right to hold you accountable. I, I used to give a lecture at the university in, in a course on leadership. And my first slide was, who do you think my boss is? And I, I had over 20 entities on there, you know, including students, their parents, faculty, the, the electorate of the state and alumni and you know, going down the list and NCAA said, all these groups feel free to tell me what I should be doing and what my priorities should be. Um, and some of them have the ability to actually um, influence it in a very substantive way, like the U.S. government in terms of setting rules, regulations, uh, requirements around what we do and how we operate. So it, it's always been complex. It's always been challenging. Uh, but I think what's different now, Doug, is 
uh, we're in a political environment where higher ed is, particularly public higher ed, has become a political football. This didn't happen suddenly. I, I saw it happening over the last decade. I remember being in legislative sessions where you would have members in, in, in the state I was in, Georgia, who would say, you know, higher education is a disaster. We need to fix it. It's broken. And then you'd sit down with them and they're obviously they say, oh, Mark, your university is doing great. We love what you're doing. At the same time, publicly, we were being used as a football, as a foil for what have become known as the culture wars. And I think that's what's making it much more difficult right now, is that the the amount of media and public attention that is being focused on the issues of society at large through the lens of what happens on our university campuses has made these jobs extraordinarily difficult. Whether you're looking at the, the labor unrest issues that have taken place in places like New Jersey and Illinois and Michigan and California, or the, the anti-DEI bills that have taken place in places like Texas and Florida, in, in all cases, whether it's a blue state or a red state, uh, we're a focal point. Our, our presidents and um, our institutions are a focal point. And I, I think sometimes the, the lens gets focused so tightly on one small or very specific issues that we're losing sight of, of the real mission of these institutions and the great things happening at these institutions. If anything, I believe these universities are even more important today than they ever have been before. Uh, but it's also, Bridget pointed out, I've already failed retirement once. I've been around long enough to know that this is not the first time that higher ed's been at this focal point. Clark Kerr and Ronald Reagan is, is a part of history. People should go back and remind themselves of the tension between um, government and our public universities um, in times of social uh, change. I am Ray Magliozzi, co-host of NPR's Car Talk. If you're working to solve the biggest challenges in higher education, you've come to the right podcast. And if you're looking for a student retention platform proven to get results, check out mainstay.com. I may be biased because the CEO of Mainstay just happens to be my son. So instead of taking my word for it, you can trust the research they've done with Georgia State, Brown, and Yale as proof that Mainstay improves enrollment, retention, and well-being. Visit mainstay.com research to learn more. Mark, do you have any thoughts about what to do about it? I don't know if, if there's anything you obviously does work on professional development, other things. Do you have... If you had answers to fixing the state of our, our de democracy and republic, that would be one thing. But in terms of the, a narrow focus on what to do about the presidency and, and how to prepare people for it and help them do it, do the job, do you have thoughts on what can be done? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, let me start off with I was president in a blue city in a red state. And the question I used to get when I was president is, how do you do it? How do you survive? And obviously, I survived quite nicely for 12 and a half years. But that's because I stayed out of the politics of it, even though I was politically engaged full time. In other words, I, I never aligned myself with a political party. I was an, always an independent. And I stayed focused on the work that we were doing as a public institution to benefit our students and our community and our state. We, we received over $200 million from the state. Uh, the overwhelming majority of our students were from the state of Georgia. And so I always stayed focused on our mission. And then the other thing is, is I developed what I would call a skill that I think is very useful in this time, which is to be a chameleon. 
And the point being is that the language that I might use may be different in the city of Atlanta than it may be in rural Georgia, but I was always the same animal. I was always doing the same thing. We were doing the work that we were doing at Georgia State, but I knew how to talk about that work in a way that could easily be understood by people at both ends of the political spectrum and, and understood in a way that they they believed in it and they wanted to be supportive of it. So that was was the key to our success. We we didn't view what we were doing as being liberal as conser- or conservative. Well, we viewed it as benefiting um, our students and our state. And we did it in such a way that we were able to explain it to both audiences in a language that they understood. I, I think one of the challenges we have today, Doug, is I, I think a large segment of the American populace has become skeptical of our institutions as being elitist or separate from uh, society. And I think we need to do a better job of listening and communicating in a language and with people with the people at the perspective that they have. In other words, you stay, stay true to your core values and what you believe in, but uh, do it in such a way where you can engage whoever you're speaking with, whether it's at a Kiwanis club or Rotary, uh, a public address, a newspaper reporter, television news or whatever, speak in a language that can be understood and appreciated by people from all um, ends of the political spectrum. So know how to speak blue, how to speak red and how to speak purple when you're in between. I mean, there are plenty of things I would I would add. You know, part of what we're doing with the show is trying to elevate the presidency as a place where they are doing a really important leadership job and we should listen to them and learn from them. When this show first started, presidents were getting attacked if they ever went in public because it was early 2020 and every time they opened their mouth, it was, you know, give me a refund. So I think there's that, but I also think that any place that creates small spaces for presidents to share and talk to each other because there is a one-on-one coaching necessity here. And so I do think APLU creates that space in your council of presidents and like, frankly, the hallway afterward. And it's also this demystifying the presidency and frankly, defending it. Like you got the comment of your job is the hardest one. No, really. No, really it is. And explaining to people just how difficult it is when every person you interact with works for you or wants something from you. And the sheer complexity of the array of stakeholders with their conflicting interests uh, that you have to make happy. I mean, I just, I, I think there's something there about telling that story, but we're always trying to figure out how to reduce the turnover and the transition over here. I want to shift to you as a leader. I feel like I've had a chance to observe your leadership up close and and now at APLU. And I I want to know how you, how you learned to be a leader and specifically from examples that you worked with in the past, do you feel like you learned more from good examples or bad ones? And can you share with us a little bit more, like how did you figure out your model of leadership? Yeah, so it's certainly I had role models and mentors, you know, as I was quote unquote coming up through the ranks and individuals that I worked with, particularly earlier in my career, especially at the associate dean level. I had a couple of great mentors in Sherman James, as epidemiologist and Noreen Clark, the late Noreen Clark, she's now passed, but was my dean. I would first say, Bridget, to the question of becoming the, the real leader, the leader you are. Um, I remember very well, I uh, was out for a run with a colleague that we used to run together at lunchtime and I was an associate dean and, you know, had this conversation with uh, my colleague, Jeff Alexander, I said, Jeff, you know, I'm going off to be a dean at the University of Minnesota. I don't know if I can do what Noreen does. She was our dean and she was my mentor. And Jeff's answer to me was, Mark, you don't need to be her, just be you and you'll be fine. And so that was the, the you know, the probably the sagest piece of advice I got was be authentic, be yourself, be real, don't try to be someone else. Uh, but to your point, 
I started studying presidents and watching them even before I got to that point. I was a faculty member at the University of Michigan when Lee Bollinger became president. I was observant of many different presidents over the years. I'd say I've learned a lot from presidents who did not thrive in the job, whose tenures ended too quickly. And so they took good notes uh, mentally, but good notes on what are the things that can end your presidency and took good notes on what are the things or what are the characteristics and habits of presidents who've been highly successful? So, you know, either case, uh, it's taking notes and lessons from watching from people I know, but also uh, people that I read about inside higher ed and other places. You've had a lot of really high points in your career, but we know that what really shows your character is when you're getting your medal tested. So I'm wondering what has been the hardest thing you've had to do as a leader and what you learned about yourself in that process. Uh, well, no, the hardest thing always is when you've made a decision that is, should we say, unpopular with at least one of your constituencies, you know, whether you've been protested, moveon.org petitions. If, if you do the job long enough, you're going to be tested by something and usually more than once if you stay in the job long enough uh, where your decisions are unpopular. And the, the litmus test I've always used is knowing why you make a decision and that you did it for the right reason and being able to, if you will, weather the storm of, of the noise, the complaints, whatever the case may be. <clears throat> I remember a lot of times over the course of my career going through, whether, you know, whether it was as a dean, a provost, or a president, having to make decisions that, as you know, in my judgment, were in the best interest of the institution, but may not have been the most popular decisions. And I think we're going to see more and more presidents of dealing with a particularly gut-wrenching decision in that area as the demographic cliff comes. I was fortunate to preside over the growth of an institution. And for people that have been in the business a long time, growth has been sort of a constant. And as we head towards the demographic cliff and perhaps less mobility globally, uh, we're going to see institutions um, having to shift from a growth mentality to a stability mentality um, at best, if not having to downsize or uh, reduce some of the things they're doing. And those sorts of decisions are incredibly unpopular. And um, I think we're heading into a lot of those kinds of storms, um, regrettably. Mark, as you look again, presumably not even at Georgia State, you've kept a, a pretty wide scan of the enterprise, but in this seat you're in now, you're, you're required to cast a, a wider glance. And I'm just kind of curious whether that's changed your perspective on what, or, or deepened it maybe and reinforced it. What is higher education most needing to do at this time? What are the changes in perspective or, or maybe doubling down on perspectives that you think are most necessary at this time? Yeah, I would say sharpening of focus, Doug. It's like, you know, sit in this role and speak with presidents, as well as uh, speak with uh, members of Congress in both parties um, and representatives of the White House. Uh, there's a real importance on our presidents today to speak about the value of their institutions in ways that uh, they're not accustomed to. A lot of the conversation been in the past has been, if I will, about a more abstract contribution that higher ed provides. This many billion dollars in economic activity. Everybody has a, an economic impact assessment <clears throat> to show the role of their institution in the economy, et cetera. Uh, but I think today people want to know, if I go to your institution 
Am I going to get a degree that is going to lead to a job and a career that I want? And the question marks on that are flashing really bright red and loud. The president of the United States wanted to forgive debt for 43 million Americans. That suggests that 43 million Americans uh, may have um, taken on amount of debt that their degrees couldn't support. That's at least an implication that people seem to see from it. We had surveys out a year ago, uh, both from the Federal Reserve and from uh, some private entities like ZipRecruiter. 40% of college graduates regret their choice of major. We, we've got, there's a lot of data points out, that are, out there that are leading people to ask the question, should I go to college? If I go to college, am I going to get a degree that is going to provide the kind of life and opportunity I want? Now, the reality is, is, is that higher education's value proposition has not diminished in the least in terms of the return on the investment. They, there's um, lots of economists that study this, and this is in this job. I've had some time to dig deeper into those um, studies. The Federal Reserve Bank, uh, both out of St. Louis and New York, have done research. Uh, but when you dig down deeper is, yes, on average, college pays off. Uh, but there are subsets of the American population that are going to college for which they're not seeing that. And so I think we, we need to um, be thinking as we look to the future, very much not on the for average, but thinking about how do we design the experience that helps every individual, you know, again, back to being a student-centered university, helps in every individual find the right path get the right experiences so that when they graduate, uh, they do get what they expected to get out of their um, investment in a college degree. It's a great investment, it pays off, uh, but we, we need to be more intentional about those pathways and, and the outcomes that students are seeing. Uh, the other part is the, the economic engagement, the community engagement, the value of research. Uh, we need to be get better at uh, partnering with our communities, our companies, et cetera. We've got a lot of institutions that are great at this, uh, very proud of the APLU members and their level of economic and community engagement, uh, but we're still not at a level where it's as appreciated as much as you'd want it to be, even by people who are our supporters, uh, people in the administration, uh, people that, uh, that are very supportive of us. They still ask questions and expect more of us. And so it, it is a challenge where are great institutions doing great things, but there's still a lot of questions. And the answer is is not to say, uh, but just listen to me. The answer is to actually be responsive to those questions and, and be able to uh, provide a, a better response than we have before for whether it's students, their families, our funders, our, our community leaders, and our the um, elected officials who support our institutions, whether they be um, through state funding, through community support, or through federal funding. I agree. I think that just a more nuanced conversation, like we can't keep parroting the exact same talking points. And I'm not saying, I don't think the public expects us to have solved it, but they do expect that we listen to the critique and we actually seem like we can't, we are responding to it. Too often I'm seeing the exact same talking point and just, it's a new day. So I, I like how you're contextualizing it. So in our last few minutes, back to the hot seat, that's where you go, Mark. Uh, so what is the advice that has most thoroughly impacted your life and your career? I wouldn't say it was advice. It was an experience as, as a teenager, as I watched both of my mother's brothers have heart attacks uh, before the age of 60 and have their lives um, short-circuited prematurely by being in an economic circumstance that killed them. 
In other words, being in jobs and carrying amount of stress that they were not prepared to handle. It, it also would include, you know, the American diet wasn't great back then. There were these things called cigarettes, but you put all that together. By the age of 17, I knew that I wanted to find a way to find work that I wanted to do, as opposed to work that I had to do. And uh, that's what uh, really propelled me to uh, thrive in college and go on to have the career I had. Truth be told, my high school GPA was much lower than my college GPA. And yeah. it, was, it was that because I was not the best high school student by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I was just fortunate to be good at mathematics, which carried me through college. Uh, I was motivated to take advantage of the transformative opportunity that higher education provides. And, and I'll say that one of the things that I'm finding in this job, and this has been a surprise to me, is that as I speak with presidents, I am finding way more presidents than I expected who, like me, started out in community college and then transferred onto a four-year institution, got a PhD, and then end up being a university president. We're, we're much more prevalent than I ever expected. I always assumed that everybody that became a university president, um, you know, graduated at the top of their high school class, um, went to one of the most elite institutions in the country, and it was, a, it was just a straight glide path into this role. Uh, but I'm finding actually quite the opposite in these conversations. Lots of people that started in community college, and then even more first-gen students. You know, so I think sort of you know, your questions, Doug, about doing these roles and their how hard they are. A lot of the people that are taking these roles today um, are people like myself, first-gen students who know the transformative power and are committed to making certain that these institutions continue to uh, prosper and provide those opportunities uh, for future generations, people that will come behind us uh, who likewise will not have um, been born into it and had to find their own way. And fortunately had an institution, professors, every individual I've ever met, every alum I met at Georgia State uh, would tell you that there was a professor who changed their life. Um, in some way, shape, or form. The metaphorical tap you on your shoulder, have you thought about? Have you thought about med school, law school, grad school? Have you thought about being an engineer, accountant, a nurse, whatever the case may be? That that power is every bit as powerful today and um, even more important uh, with uh, as we serve a larger segment of society than the universities have historically um, in lifting up future generations and, and more diverse generations. And so um, you know, I think that's, for me, has been particularly powerful is, is to come out of a world where I got to experience that and now to be working with colleagues across the, our membership who are motivated by the same things I've been motivated by, which is basically to make the world a better place. It's great work if you can get it. I can't think of a better way to end this conversation. That is really helpful and profound. And it is so important to have public examples like yourself. You and I have shared that in common of being kind of surprisingly more underdoggy and yet filling these roles that we have this idea of a stereotype of who fills them. So I love the humanizing of it. And also I think that kind of resilience is necessary for the chapter ahead. So this has been a wonderful conversation, Mark. It is always a del delight to have you on the show. Please come back, especially if you have news to break. And Doug, as always, you're an excellent co-host. And for those of you at home, I hope this has given you a bit of inspiration and perspective for the week ahead. And we will see you soon. Mm -hmm.